Welcome to Tactically Acquired. Our goal is to document military-connected living history in a fun and easy environment. We will capture the stories of our active duty, guard, reservists, veterans, ROTC, and their families, sharing their stories, adventures, and journeys across the military life cycle. The podcast is for anyone interested in joining the military, has been part of the military, or wishes to learn more about military life. In addition, we want to bridge the growing military-civilian divide through education. This is unfiltered, meaning we'll go over the good, the bad, and yes, maybe even the ugly of being a military-connected individual. I'm your host, Rusty Martis, a retired Air Force Mustang and OEF veteran, and I run the Veterans Resource Station at North Kentucky University. Welcome. I have my special guest today who is an Air Force veteran, but we'll get into that in just a minute. First, just thank you for being here. Thank you. To get into it, Please just tell us uh, your name and the branch of service that you were in and time frames. My name's Steve Whelan. I was originally commissioned a second lieutenant in 1971 in the U.S. Army Military Police. After eight years, I switched my commission from the Army to the Air Force and was on active duty until 1976. Which is so awesome because you eventually got to the right service branch. <laughs> right? Am I wrong? Oh, I'll tell you, I love, you know, when you take that oath of office, it never leaves you. Absolutely. And that's, I think, a lot of things that veterans understand, but the citizenry doesn't. And I'm glad you mentioned that. And that's one of the reasons we actually do this podcast is to help bridge that military-civilian divide so you can learn a little bit about the, the personnel that served or are serving and currently in the military. Now, you had told me earlier, and even though I hesitate to mention this school, uh, <laughs> now we actually have a great partnership with the school that you went to ROTC with. As a matter of fact, uh, um, one of the ROTC members came over and did a podcast with me several weeks ago who is uh, going through the same similar program. Um, but what, where did you do your Reserve Officer Training Corps time? I did my training at uh, Xavier University. Um, I had a little problem in school when I was at the University of Illinois, so I wound up doing a four-year accounting program in three and wound up with a number 40 in the draft lottery, which nobody at the young age would ever understand. Right. Yeah, so you then went through RTC at Xavier. You graduate with a counting degree then. So I'm, so I'm learning right. stuff already. And then you had mentioned once you graduate, you went Army Reserves out of that. We were put into the reserves because President Nixon at the time was drawing down from Vietnam, said we had too many officers, and only those that were on scholarship were allowed to continue. What did you do in the reserves then? Because you said you were in the MP, military police. We were the 452nd NP uh, detachment over on Seymour Avenue. It was a contingent of 99 enlisted, four officers, one commander, and we probably had 35 to 40 additional officers in there, so we were all over strength. How did you then transition from that into deciding to go Air, Air Force? Force? Okay. Uh, I moved up to, from Cincinnati to Dayton in 1978. Uh, took a job with a uh, automotive company absolutely despised it. Mm. 
but my neighbor down the street was a full colonel. And when you live close to Wright-Patterson, there were 360 full colonels on the base. Wow. So, you know, one of your neighbors was definitely going to be there. And uh, he said they needed officers. Uh, and I said, okay. And I wound up transitioning from the Army to the Air Force. Went into, at that time, it was called data processing, which later became information systems. And from that, I managed the uh, base-level computer operations for Wright-Patterson, which at that time supported 35,000 military and civilian personnel. It's just crazy. And what time frame was this? 1979 to 1982. So what did the computers look like back then? All the computers back then, uh, to say they were ancient would be nice. <laughs> uh, we were using Burroughs 3500s that transitioned up to 4700s. Honeywell 716s, which supported the Air Force Institute of Technology. And when we had to do stuff with overseas work, uh, we were using IBM old 7080s. Now, when I had to crank up the IBM 7080s, it took so much heat that I had to turn down my Burroughs 3500s, otherwise the room would overheat and I'd release Halon. Wow, that's crazy. It, and when you're talking there, I'm thinking about an old picture I saw fairly recently ago, um, and it might have been at Wright Pat, but it was a huge kind of hangar, warehouse kind of, uh, that they had a lot of systems in there. We were down in the basement of uh, Building 262. I had nine military and 36 civilians working for me on 21 shift a week operation. It was kind of a unique environment because the civilians hated the military, vice versa. Uh, men hated the women on whether they be military or civilian. And that was probably one of the biggest projects that I had to work out. Wow. We worked that out to the fact when we would process payroll checks every week, and this is back in the old days, uh, we'd do 17,000 plus payroll checks a week. Wow. Within that, you had to run the program, print the checks, decollate and collate the checks, and get them set for being sent out. This was prior to the ability of direct deposit. Yeah. Right. So in doing that, I wound up working with both military and civilians. Uh, I had two guys that got into it all the time. And the one guy later became a GS-15. Wow. I should have gotten rid of him. And he's, he walked up to me as I was leaving and said, Captain Whelan, you're the first one that I have never filed a discrimination suit against. Wow. Uh, one night they called me on a Tuesday night at midnight and said, what do you want third shift to do? I says, what do you mean? You've got all this paperwork to decollate, collate, checks to do, and everything else. He said, we're done. And what happened was they sat down, they all worked together. They finally figured and it out. And figured out how to make this run, how to do things, and that was a, a big boost to me becoming officer of the quarter. Wow, that's, that's amazing and <laughs> really cool and awesome. Now, do you credit that time? Obviously, it was great leadership that brought them all together and do that. Is, do you think that was uh, help through your Army time at, during ROTC, or was it just kind of your natural it, abilities? It, it kind of was 
my natural ability mm -hmm. and prior to coming back on active duty, I worked for the city of Cincinnati and was the automotive buyer for them and then later an accountant with the Department of Health uh, managing multiple programs. So it became one of those how to get these people to look past their biases right. and work together. And once they worked together, it was fine. Uh, the crazy thing was I couldn't put women on the second shift. No, nothing you could do to make it Nothing I could do huh? to make it integrated as far as men and women. And the women actually liked it. They either worked first shift or third shift and uh, they didn't have to put up with the craziness of second because second shift began at four o'clock when most systems were going down. And at that point we had to run all of the daily programs, do everything as batch. It's not like the things are today. You brought up a couple, a lot of amazing points, but two things I wanna jump back from real quick. When, because you were talking about you basically moved up to Dayton, ran into a colonel that's on your street, and he's like, oh, just come over to the Air Force. I'm sure it wasn't quite that simple, was it? Did no. you have to go back and go through any additional training or do anything? No, or was it absolutely no. Okay. All I had to do was fill out the paperwork, do a conditional release from the Army, and I was sworn in in June of 79 into the Air Force. So it wasn't really as difficult as I thought it would be. No, there's an air, there's a... Uh, DOD regulation out there that actually tells you what and how to do this. And when I went to staff officer school down at Keesler, uh, I had done this with the Army. Guy who had won the CIB and later became an officer did the same thing from the Army. And a Navy lieutenant commander did it to the Air Force in the same way. Wow, but you, they saw your skill set right, and brought you right in and there you go, become officer of the quarter. Yeah, <laughs> That's I was. Great. I came in in '79, and uh, in October to December of '81 is when I made officer of the quarter. Awesome, very cool. So, but the other thing I want to touch up real quick is you mentioned about batch. So, in my mind, what I'm seeing, and I, I actually talked to a gentleman that uh, was part of the Army um, integration into computer systems, and he was talking about like 5,000 really, I guess they're called batch uh, punch cards kind of thing and if one of them got out of whack the whole thing was you had to basically delete it all start over what what batch does or what batch did at the time mm -hmm. it took the data you input it held it in the queue and then at the end of the day is when you ran the queue to update what the permanent records were it's not like today where if you input something it immediately updates Back then, we didn't have that capability. Gotcha. Now, you mentioned about uh, dropping a card deck. Two things. I had that happen one night. I got a call, and they said, we dropped the card deck to load the Honeywell 716. So they had to rerun all the trays of cards to get them back into sequence to get them up in time so the Air Force Institute of Technology was not impacted. Wow. Now also within the uh, AFIT as we knew it, they wound up, a guy wound up taking two very unclassified documents, combining them, and it made it a top secret document. Oh. To which back in the old days, you didn't have 
removable hard drives like we've got today that are small. These were big 12-inch platens stacked seven or eight high. And OSI had to come in, Office of Special Investigations had to come in. We identified what they were, and then we had to physically destroy those disk packs. Wow, ain't that crazy? Yeah. So you didn't just store it in the garage in the corner? Like oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Um, so, Wright-Patterson, that wasn't your last duty station then. No, so that was my first up, one. Where did you end up going after? From there, I went to headquarters Air Forces Europe. Okay. Uh, one of the things that we were doing there when I was at the base level was using satellite link between us and Lake and Heath to print data. Lake and Heath was using the satellite, we were printing at Ramstein and then flying it back on a C-130, the paper. That's, and we thought that was hot stuff. Right. At that time. And, and what, when was this time? 1982. Frame? And how many people don't even know that we were using satellites back <coughs> in 1982? Uh, probably not many, not because many. It, was, yep. it was very limited time. Mm -hmm. You had to have that satellite in perfect position mm -hmm. and the data had to come down in perfect position. It's not like today like a SATCOM telephone or even your, your own telephone on your hip where you yep. can call halfway around the world. Absolutely. Uh, from there I went up to uh, headquarters Europe, worked on the five-year development plan, which was a very interesting and unique time because we were looking at uh, fiscal years 86 to 90. I cannot talk about it. <laughs> From there, uh, we wrote the uh, integration of data automation and communications in Europe mm. into the new uh, Air Force mod of creating data automation and communications into what's today called information systems, or let me rephrase that. That's what they called it until they've changed the name again. Of course, I've been out for, wow, close to 40 years. Awesome. <laughs> so things have changed. but. That was very important. We wound up the two officers because the one had a uh, adopted child with medical issues and he got pulled back, but we went to uh, SAC headquarters, to communications command headquarters there at Scott, to Washington DC, presented the proposal, it was accepted, and uh, that's when I rotated out of Germany to Washington, D.C. So then you end up in D.C. I wound up, yeah, in D.C. Yeah. I was originally hoping to go to uh, McDill, mm. but the guy decided to extend for a year. <laughs> so it took your slot away. It huh? took my slot away. <laughs> and I wound up working with the Air Force above a Chinese restaurant in the shopping center in Franconia, Virginia. <laughs> and we shared the floor with a dentist. Uh, there were nine officers and about a hundred civilians. And what we did was we would go out and do analysis of new programs to put in or whatever. As long as you could get your funding through GSA, that's what happened. They looked at my record and said, you've been executive officer before. Captain Whelan, you're now filling the Lieutenant Colonel's billet. <laughs> okay. Uh, which was ironic because I went on leave uh, for a couple days, came back, and they said, here's your job. 
you're going to find the Air Force people, new homes, and we're transitioning the Federal Computer Simulation Center from under the Air Force to GSA. Wow. So start the paperwork because we're going to the Hill in order to make this happen. Wow, and GSA? General Service Administration. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that was unique. That was an 11-month assignment. Wow. And uh, they wanted me to stay in Washington and go with the First Information Systems Group. And then I wound up with a Air Force two-star out at Scott that wanted me to come out there. But Air Force Military Personnel Center said, you're going to Columbus, Ohio on a joint duty assignment. You never make a two-star mat. <laughs> he called me right after I got sent there. I explained what happened and why. And the major that was doing this wanted her lieutenant colonel's billet and thought she was going to Colorado Springs. She wound up in Keflavik. Cool. Which is where? Iceland. Iceland. <laughs> nice. That's why I say, never make a two-star man. You just never know what's going to happen, where you're going to end up. Huh? And uh, <laughs> it was at that, uh, we did all the data automation, systems automation for all of Defense Logistics Agency. Wow. Uh, we were doing a lot of work before uh, the Finance Center moved out there to Columbus. Uh, we had responsibilities to all of the defense supply regions, the decasters, the decasmas, uh, and that, that was one where I literally, I had blanket travel orders, and if the boss said, we're going somewhere, I had my bag packed because I had to. Wow. I was on the road three and four days a week. At that point, I got remarried, and uh, my wife said, I don't know if I can do this. Right. And that's one thing that becomes very, very important when you're in the military. You need 100% backing from the spouse. Mm -hmm. And she, he or she has to be a very active player in making sure that your life is good. Absolutely. And uh, if you don't have that, Ladies and gentlemen, make the choice, do your initial time, get out, say thank you very much, and walk away. Well, I think that's <coughs> amazing advice and so true. And I think we're doing a little bit better job today, but we're still a far cry away to what we need to do. And that's just bringing the family in, making sure the family's good, the spouse, the children, everybody, because they serve just as much as you, just in a different capacity. They do. And remember, most people don't understand the military. Absolutely. And that's the other piece, because, you know, in my case, from 79 to 82, 82 to 84, 84 to 85, 85 to 86. So I had four or five moves in there. Mm -hmm. and you really have to be willing to accept that. You learn that less is more, but also uh, you, you learn that the integral part of your life is that family unit. And that's what you're actually gonna have your OERs or your APRs written about. Because that is one of the main components to how you are as a well-rounded person. Absolutely, absolutely. I want to jump back real quick um, and just 
get a better understanding of why you decided to join the service in the first place. Why Xavier ROTC Army? Well, when you have a number 40 in a draft lottery and it's at the height of Vietnam, gotcha. uh, you know, that's, that's a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. uh, did I want to go field artillery? No, I didn't want to be out there as a forward observer in Vietnam. Uh, working with uh, forward air controllers, mm -hmm. uh, the bird dog pilots, because that got a little dangerous. Right. So I decided military police would be good because I always did appreciate law enforcement and appreciate following the rules. Little did I know that uh, the MPs went out first to clear out the snipers so the engineers could clear out the mines so the trucks could move. There you go. You know, yeah. dumb move understand what you're going into and right. why. Uh, well, that's interesting because I didn't realize that neither. So I'm yeah. learning just a ton. So I appreciate you sharing that information yeah, it, with you. Uh, it was. And of course, you know, when you get around those fire bases in Vietnam, who's guarding them? Right. MPs. MPs, yeah. So, you know, you're, you're going to be out there on the front line even though you weren't considered as being one of the big three in combat right. in the Army. So, uh, again, some great advice, make sure you know what you're getting into and what it entails when you sign that dotted line. But see, I, I wasn't military, but I was in three high schools in three states in four years. Wow. So you're used, to, I was used to moving, mm -hmm. but I also realize now how I really don't have the friends and the relationships that are built during your high school years. Yeah, yeah. Well, and again, I, I think about my totally different scenario situation but similar experiences my children change schools on a fairly regular basis and they don't have that continuity um, but we were also away from any family and so they didn't have that family continuity as well so again how important it is just to remember that family served just as much the family is capacity the family if without the family you better be single and uh you know, you better be willing to accept it. Yep. And that's one of the reasons, kind of one of the reasons we started doing this podcast is just to help share that information. But one of the things that we did when I was uh, director of operations at UC's ROTC program for the Air Force is the, the students, the senior students actually asked if we would do um, a briefing to their significant others about what they're getting into when they graduate. And yeah. I thought that was just brilliant and it worked out really well. And I will say um, quite a few of the people that I taught in that little training are still uh, your spouses uh, of the military member today. Yes. And that was back in 2013. So at least gave them an idea of what they're getting into. And you had mentioned that one of the reasons you decided to, to separate from the service was because, you know, you... you, you you've, you've got to make that choice. Yes, you And choice. at some point... Uh, quite honestly, family has to come first. Absolutely. You, you can do the mission, mm -hmm. but the family has to be an integral part of that mission. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then um, when, you, when you decided to, to transition out of the service, you were in Columbus, correct? Yes. So how did you end up uh, back down into the greater Cincinnati area? <laughs> Did you stay in Columbus for a while? We stayed, Did you in have a we stayed in Columbus for 24 years. Okay, okay. I wound up working for Columbus schools, bringing in 
uh, computers into the schools on an administrative basis. At that time, there were 200 locations. Uh, we also wound up taking over the uh, individual Apple. Back then, they were using Apple IIEs. Uh, from there, I went to the state of Ohio and worked there uh, in a high-level capacity until I had a heart attack and bypass surgery and decided I needed my nine years and 98 days, as my wife says, in order to get my 30 years in. Nah. So it, it became important. My wife's a nurse practitioner, and at that point, she wanted to come back here. She thought she had a better job opportunity, and uh, it was, but you know, it was one of those things of, would I rather be here? No, I'd rather be in the hills of East Tennessee. Gotcha. <laughs> Quite honestly. Well, we're glad you're here, <laughs> for sure. Um, but, and the reason I was getting to that question was really to talk about your transition out of yeah. the service. And did you go through any type of um, struggles, situations, or you kind of had a job lined up from all the, the experience No, you no, got? I didn't have a job lined up, but my career path of being both operations and administration in computers. Right. When the Columbus Public Schools was looking for an administrator for operations, one for tech support, and one for programming, it was like I was a natural fit for operations because at that time they were also using Honeywell equipment, which I had knowledge of. Absolutely. So going in there, and working with the other two uh, gentlemen that were part of this, uh, we made some massive changes in the school systems, uh, brought them up, and uh, while it was a first cut, it was a major first cut because it uh, really cut down on the amount of time and transition that uh, records had to be done and kept. Absolutely, absolutely. So. You, you end up going to, to work um, in Columbus through the school systems and then eventually for the state and, and so on and so forth. But when you got out of the service, how long did it take you, to, do you feel, to kind of get out of that mindset? Maybe never did, of that military mindset getting in and just feeling quote unquote, being back in the civilian sector? Uh, being back in the civilian, realized too, I had worked around civilians most of my military career because the Air Force has a lot of civilians in there. Great point. So it became one of those that it was an easy enough transition for me uh, to do that. Uh, yeah, great point, great point. So do you have, and maybe this question doesn't even make sense at this point in time, but I'm curious, because you worked with so many civilians and everything throughout your military career and obviously when you got out, is there anything that you want or think that civilians should know about the military service? Military people are very structured. Roger. Uh, they live by a set of rules. Those rules are inviolate. There's right and there's wrong. There's no gray. Right. Uh, whereas in the civilian line, uh, there's a little bit of white, a little bit of black, and a heck of a lot of gray. Great way. And it's yep. trying to merge those people to understand and know that. And you have to be very transparent with them. You have to be very open and communicate with them what your decision is and why. 
And for them, the mission may not come first mm -hmm. because they're civil service. And because they are civil service, they're protecting their retirement. Now, retirements have changed over the years, so that, that becomes almost a moot point. But uh, yeah, it, that was probably the biggest part of the transition was, we're gonna do this, here's what, here's why. I find myself still to this day, 40 years later, uh, writing point papers and staff summary sheets in the methodology <laughs> that I learned in Tongue and Quill. Right, <laughs> Tongue and Quill. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Tongue and Quill, for those that don't know, is basically the writing guide for the Air Force. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it, once you get into that habit, it becomes easy because you start to look at what's this, what's that, what's next, give me three alternatives, pick the best alternatives, get everybody to sign off. Well, I want to just thank you right here, right now, because I teach um, a course called the Green Zone Training, Green Zone Brigade Training, it, which is basically having an understanding of the military mindset once they get out in the transition and a lot of times how that's a struggle for them. And I think you explained it better than I have ever explained it in any of my classes, black and white versus gray. And understanding that and building that, I, I, that's brilliant. I love it. That, you've so. got to build that bridge. Yep. And once they understand you or once the bosses understand you as to why things are that way, it's amazing how things will move forward uh, and being an old accountant, your cost efficiencies come into play. It's not the bottom line. Mm -hmm. It's what is going to best serve. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm kind of curious. A lot of the individuals that may listen to these podcasts are kind of civilians just curious about the military, service members who serve and are getting out, and then the ones that are going to go into the service. For those that are thinking about joining the service, do you have any advice for those folks? Leave your mind open. You're gonna be trained a new and different way to do things. It may not necessarily sit with you, and I'm, I'm going back 45 years. Mm -hmm. It may not sit with you right, right today, but as you move forward, and you find out that everybody is pretty much trained the same way, this allows you to fit in without a force fit. You actually transition into a unit and you become part of immediately, and that's your acceptance. Well, Stephen, thank you so very much. That was awesome. I learned a tremendous amount, and I appreciate you taking the opportunity and the time to be part of Tactically Acquired. Thank you. Thank you.